Father, thanks so much for this time that you've given us. I pray for this class, especially, Father, as we learn about you. This is a very important topic, Father, something that um, is probably the most important thing we could even study at all. I pray that you'd open our hearts, clear our minds, give us understanding. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. We depend on him to help us learn. And Father, I pray that at the end of this course that we may know you better personally. We may not just know about you, but we may know you. And I thank you for every person who's been here, who's here now, that you would just meet them in a very special way. We commit this time to you. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, you have notes in front of you. We'll have notes printed out every week um, so you can take notes and write things down. Um, and again, f- please make sure you sign the, the sign-up sheet there as it goes around. Yeah, it's going around. It's working its way around. And hopefully there's enough spaces on there. Um, let's ask a question here. What is theology proper? We're going to be studying theology proper here. And we talk about theology proper. What is that? That's a term that's used to refer to the study of the person and work of God. Um, Theology as a term itself refers to all of doctrine. So we can't really call the study of God theology, although it sort of is. Theology is more study not only of God, but of Christ, the Holy Spirit, everything having to do with um, spiritual issues. Theology proper, though, is focusing in on the person and work of God himself. And the primary focus is on the Godhead as a whole, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the secondary focus is on, specifically, the Father, the first person of the Trinity. There are other areas of theology that we'll be looking at in subsequent classes, focusing in on Christ, that would be Christology, and that those Topics in that would be like the person and work of Christ, who is he, um, proofs of his deity, his work on the cross, redemption, resurrection, all of that would be part of that. Another subsequent class will be pneumatology. That's a fancy word for pneuma, Holy Spirit, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives today? We'll be studying that. But for this course, we're going to study basically God himself and Secondarily, the Father in that, um, in that study. And some of the topics that we'll be looking at in the weeks ahead um, include, for example, the existence of God. Um, we can't prove the existence of God, but there certainly are some evidences that show you that he's out there. Um, we'll be looking at the Trinity. We're going to spend, be spending quite a bit of time on this, in fact, on the proof of the Trinity. And the reason for that is because just about every cult that you run into is going to deny that doctrine. Um, that is really one of the linchpin doctrines of the Christian faith. The Jehovah Witnesses that show up to your door will tell you that Jesus is not God. He's a God. The Mormons will tell you that Jesus is not God. He is the um, spiritual offspring of Elohim with many, one of his many celestial wives. I don't know if you knew that about Mormonism is really funky stuff. Um, and just about every other cult, Islam, for example, Islam, there's, there's even a movement in Christianity today that sort of try to say, well, Islam, Christianity, we worship sort of the same God. No, we don't. No, we don't. The God of Islam is not the God of the Bible. It's a different God. And, if, and you can be having a very good conversation with somebody of the um, Islamic faith, and then you mention the Trinity, and all of a sudden now you're off on two different tangents. 
because they do not believe in the Trinity at all. We're going to look at the decree of God. Now, this is an interesting thing. What is the decree? That's God's plan. You know, God had a plan for creation. He didn't uh, create things and sort of hope they all work out. And um, unfortunately, by the way, when we talk about the decree here, there's a, there's a movement now in Christianity today called open theism. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Or the openness of God. Um, that's sort of starting to make some inroads into evangelicalism. But basically, the openness of God says, God really doesn't infallibly know the future. He really doesn't know what's going to happen. He's sort of working it out as he goes along. And hopefully everything will work out okay, but God really doesn't infallibly know the future. He can't really predict what's going to happen because it hasn't happened yet in their theology. We'll be talking about that. Of course, we're going to be talking about the attributes of God. What is God like? And we'll be talking about, and this is the most important thing, the knowledge of God as a person. I hope that you don't take this course and come out of here saying, okay, I know what a saity is, I know what omniscience is, I know what omnipresence means, and I know the verses that support all of that. That's good. But really, the goal of this course is not to know about God, but to know God. That's the importance of it. The lifelong, our lifelong pursuit as believers is not to know about God. I mean, that is important, but that's not the end. The end is to know Him. It's the same difference that, you know, when I first married my wife, I thought I knew her. I could pick her out of a crowd. I knew her name. I knew some things about her. But 28 years later, I'm learning more things that I never knew before. One of them is she's deathly claustrophobic. I found that out when they tried to give her an MRI. It didn't work. Um, three times. Um, so you learn new things. And one of the things that um, I would hope that you would pick up in this class is that the pursuit is to know God on a personal, relational level. That's what it means to know God. Not to know about Him merely, but to know Him. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So we're going to look at these things. We're going to start here. Why study God? Why is it important for us to even be here? Why take an hour out of Sunday morning to sit in a class like this, crowded? We'll work on that. Um, and to know about God. Why, why do we want to study Him? And then we're going to look at the existence of God. How would you um, talk to somebody about the fact that God does exist? How would you go about um, defining that and, and defending that? We're going to look at the attributes of God. This is going to be about a four-week or five-week um, session on just what is God like? What are His attributes? And when we talk about God, what do we mean when we say that God is self-existent? And what are the implications for me? When I say that, we'll look at the decree of God. Again, His eternal plan, the Trinity. And we'll, well, when you're done with the Trinity, hopefully you'll be able to go to the Scripture and show how Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, God the Father is God, yet there's one God. And although we don't understand that and we can't sort that out in our finite human minds, that's the way it is. And that's because God is much bigger and better than we are. Um, God is beyond our comprehension. And one of the frustrations that we will have, at least in this life, is no matter how much we think we know God, there's always something else there. He's an infinite being. It's a wonderful thing. And I think what we'll be doing in heaven is not sitting around playing harps on clouds, but we will spend all of eternity getting to know God. And it's going to be an infinite process. And it's going to be infinitely wonderful to get to know Him. And we can start now by learning a little bit about Lastly, the knowledge of God. Who is he like? What is he? How can I relate to him on a daily basis? See, I don't want you to come out of here and say, well, theology is a bunch of facts and a bunch of verses and a bunch of proofs. No. 
the knowledge of God will affect the way you view life. In fact, we're going to look at that next week. How you view God is going to color how you approach life. How you approach the trials of your life all depends on what you think God is. If God is, is sovereign and in control when you have a trial, that's part of God's plan for you. And you can work through that. If you think he's out of control and doesn't know what's going on and hopefully he'll work things out, well, that's a whole different way. You're going you know, to look at problems a whole different way. So that's what we're going to look at. So let's ask the question, and again, please, I'm gonna, I will roll and nonstop. I can talk nonstop for hours. So if you, don't, if you want to interrupt, feel free to do that. All right? We can, and of course, probably as time goes on, you'll feel more comfortable interrupting, but feel free to do that. Yes, I like it already. You don't have that page? They mess it up? It's on the back? They go back to back? They staple them funny? All right, somewhere in the packet there's this page. <laughs> All right. Okay. We'll have that next week. Um, we need a massive pot, I think, for this class here. You know. But anyways, why study God? Why do you want to study God at all? Well, number one, it's the reason for your existence. Why did God create you? Why did God create man? For relationship. You think God? Now, here's the. You know, when you think about this, it's kind of. You know, it's kind of hard to consider in our finite human mind these these concepts. But God did not create humanity because He was lonely. You know, God was lonely. He was all by Himself. You know, He had the Trinity. And they were sort of like, man, what do we do now? You know, we're sort of here lonely. No, God didn't create us because we were, he was lonely. God created us because he wanted to, because of his good pleasure. It gave him enjoyment. Now, that's a heavy thought. God created the universe for his own enjoyment and pleasure. We get to be part of that. We get to be part of that plan. But God did not create us to fulfill us, to make us happy. God created us for his own good pleasure. Um, Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says uh, God created all things for his own pleasure because he wanted to. And when you ask God, if you get to heaven and God says, okay, you can ask a question, what would you like to know? And you said, well, why did you create the universe? He said, I wanted to. That's the answer. And when God created us, he created us because he wanted to, but he created us in a very special way. He created us what we call the Imago Dei. That's a Latin term, which means the image of God. God created us in his image. Now the question, of course, is, well, what does that mean when we're created in God's image? Um, if you ask the Mormon people, they say we're creating God's image in our physical existence. In fact, they would say if you were to meet God the Father today, he would look no different than any human being you would meet on the street. He has five fingers. He's about 6'4". I mean, they would even give you a little bit of a description of him. To them, God is no different than us. In fact, in the Mormon faith, if you're good and you do whatever they tell you to do, someday you'll be a God yourself and you'll get your own planet. Um, it's really a funky kind of uh, theology that they have there, but it's, that's what they believe. And if you don't believe me, go out to the mormons.org website and they will tell you exactly that. Because that's what they believe. But what does the Imago Dei include? Well, when God creates his image, it's not talking about our physical makeup. It's not talking about our physical appearance. It's talking about our soul experience. 
the immaterial us, who we really are. And when God created man, God created man with a personality. All of us have different personalities, right? We all see and feel and act differently. We all have a personality. We have a will. We're able to make decisions and choices. We're able to choose. God created us with emotion, right? We, we feel. We have passions. We hurt. We love. We laugh. We cry. God created us with an intellect, the ability to understand. And not only that, but this is the last thing. God created us with an ability to form relationships with one another and with God. Can two rocks have a relationship? No, because there's no ability to communicate. There's no, there's no common ground. But God created man not only with the ability to think and to have a will, but he created man with the ability to relate to him on a personal level. That's something that your dog and cat do not have. A dog and a cat might be able to relate, and they have a... I know about cats' personalities. They're all different. Um, we got one cat that's stuck up and sits in the corner and growls, and another cat that gets into all kinds of things and has a riot. Um, they have personality, but do you talk to your cat? I mean, do you, do you talk to your cat and it talks back to you, right? <laughs> I talk to my cat, but the cat doesn't talk back. The cat knows his name, and usually that means feeding time. You know, and my wife has a dog, Stetson, who is a hearing dog for her. He helps her out and he knows a few words like sit and stay and eat <laughs> and treat. He likes that word. Um, but I don't talk to him. I don't relate to him. I can't communicate with him. But what can we do to God? God we can communicate with God. And remember, what did God do in the garden every evening? Walk with that. Walk with Adam, right? What was that all about? It's relationship. God had a... Look, folks, this is the thing that blows your mind. In eternity future, we get to have a relationship with God. We get to talk to Him. Can you imagine that? Being able to talk to God face to face. And when God was talking to Adam, was God asking for information? Well, no, because God knew everything, right? What was it? It was a relationship. It was a sharing and guess what God created us for? He created us to have a relationship with Him. That's why He created us. But what happened in the fall? It was shattered. That relationship was shattered. God created man in order to have a personal relationship with Him. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, don't when you, when you read that, don't go where the word faith crowd goes. That's... Copeland, Hagen, people like that who say we are little gods and we can create our own reality and that kind of stuff. Positive confession kind of thing. No, that's not what it's talking about. When it says let's make man in our image after our likeness, it's referring to the ability to have relationships. You're not a little god. You can't order your reality. You can go out on a dark night and say let there be light and nothing happens until the sun comes up. But what God does, when we say, let there be light, there was. Because he's God, you're not. God created us to have a personal relationship with him. But when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, what happened? That relationship was shattered. How, how, in, in what way was that relationship shattered? How do you know that from, from reading Genesis? How do you know that? They hid themselves from God. So there was a fear of that intimacy that they used to have with God, what else happened? 
they ate from the tree that caused them to see good and evil to know it they noticed they were naked they were ashamed what did God do? threw them out put two cherubim by the head of the garden and not let them in I mean, when you read Genesis 2 and 3 in the fall there, you see that, that that relationship with God was totally shattered. And the way back to God was closed off. Unless you did what? Unless you came to God on His terms. That's one of the important things to understand. You worship God on His terms, not yours. We have a lot of people that they say, well, I'm going to worship God this way. It doesn't work that way. You want to approach God, you approach God His way. And in the garden, God gave them a way back, didn't he? It was a sacrifice. And Abel said, okay, I'll do that. I'll bring that. And what did Cain say? Well, you know, the fruit of the grain, that's good enough for God. He'll take it. And of course, God did not. In the fall, our relationship was shattered. But here's the thing. In redemption, it's restored. Why did Christ die on the cross? To get you out of hell? That's a good thing, isn't it? To get out of hell? That's a good thing. How about going to heaven? That's a good thing. But he didn't save you for that. He saved you to restore a relationship. All the rest of the stuff is icing on the cake. That's all the positive benefits that with it. God did not save you to get you out of hell. God did not save you to go to heaven. God did not save you to make you happy in this life, necessarily. God saved you to restore a relationship with him. Everything else is icing on the cake. And this relationship, by the way, is going to be fully realized for us in the eternal state, right? Look at uh, Revelation 22. And what do you see there? You don't see a temple, right? There's no temple there. don't need a temple, right? You don't need an altar. Everybody's perfect, so there's no need to ask God for forgiveness because you can't sin. That's a good thing, right? You can't sin in the eternal state. Not only will you get there, but you won't be able to mess it up once you get there, which is a wonderful thing. But we will see, be seeing God face to face. And what I find interesting is at the end of Revelation 22 there, it says the spirit and the bride say come. Who's the bride? The church. Who's the spirit? Now, think about this. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the church in Revelation 22 are inviting what? Come. What does that imply about the Spirit in the church? If, if I were to be to your house, if I were to come over to your house as a guest, and as people were leaving, I certainly would not say, now y'all come back. Right? Why not? It's not my house. It's not my home. But what you find in Revelation 22 is heaven is our Home. The Spirit and the church are inviting those who whosoever will come. They're inviting them there, showing an equality between the two. Second reason of studying God is Christ's desire for us. John 17, verse 3. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Christ, in fact, Christ in his high priestly prayer said, Father, I pray that they would know you because that is the reason for my coming. That is the reason for existence. Eternal life is not duration. You know that, right? The lost in hell, do they, do they have eternal life? Yeah, they live forever in that sense, right? 
But what is the quality of life? A lot different, isn't it? Eternal life is not duration. Eternal life is quality. Christ said, to know God is to have eternal life. That's what it is. If you want, if you want to live in peace and joy in your life, it's to know God. Now, that does not mean everything's going right for you, does it? It doesn't mean that all your circumstances are, you know, better roses and life is no problems. It doesn't mean that at all, but it means in spite of the problems, in spite of the issues, you know that God is there and you have his peace. That's what it means to know God. And this knowledge is not just here, not just head knowledge. It's not just, I have it up here. Nor is it the facts about God. We're going to learn facts in this class, but again, that's not the end point. The end point is to know about the person of God on a personal level. You can learn all you can about George Bush. You can know where he went to school. You can know all the facts of his life and never met the guy, right? That doesn't mean you know George Bush. You want to know George Bush, you're going to have to spend some quality time with George Bush. And if you want to know God the Father, what are you going to have to do? Spend some quality time with God the Father. With God. You want to know God, it's going to be, there's going to be a price. It's going to cost you something. But it's Christ's desire that we know Him. Also, a knowledge of God is the natural result of spiritual growth. As you grow spiritually, what happens to you? Hopefully, you will grow in your knowledge of God. And 1 John 2, 12-14 lists these phases, sort of, as spiritual children, spiritual young men, and spiritual fathers. And if you want to think about this, you know, think about your relationship. When I think about it, I think about my relationship with my parents. You know, 50, I'm almost 50 now, that's a scary thought. But, uh, you know, let's say 48 years ago, how did I know my father and mother? They were mom, they were dad. I obeyed them, right? There was a relationship there. But they were my parents. But what happened as I grew up and entered my teens, uh, the relationship began to change, right? No longer were they as much the authority, but they were more coaching. And, and then as I grew up and I got married and as I went on from there, the relationship between my parents changed to now they're no longer my mother and father in the sense that I have a bedtime and i got to do what they tell me to do. But... I have a relationship with them. I talk to them as a peer, almost. We share life together. They ask me opinions, and I give them opinions. And, and, and it's, it's more of a peer relationship. It's not that they're not my parent, but the relationship has changed because I have grown. And that's the way it is with God. Spiritual children know what? They know who God is. They know the Father. And more importantly here, it says they know their sins are forgiven. If you look at a person who's a young Christian, what do they know? They know God. They know that their sins are forgiven. They know that. They might not know, they don't know theology. They don't know all the ins and outs. And they might not be able to name the books of the Bible, but they can pick out who their father is. And they know their sins are forgiven. And as they grow in their spiritual life, as they mature, what happens? They begin to know the Word of God. They know the Scripture. And in knowing the Scripture, what are you able to do? You're able to overcome the evil one. Who's that? Satan. You're able to pick out error. You're able to deal with the trials of life because you know the Scripture. You know the Word of God. But that's not the end point. See, if you stop at that point, what do you have? Head knowledge. Oh, you know the facts. You know the theology. You can... You can 
know the books of the Bible, you know the verses, you know all of that. But it's, it's not really to know God yet, because that's where the spiritual father comes in. What do they do? They know him who is from the beginning. They know God. And I would pray that our desire in this class is, don't, don't, again, I'm going to emphasize this till you feel like I'm saying it a thousand times. This is, class is not to know the facts of God, it's to know him. To reach that spiritual father stage, and that's metaphoric, it's for women as well, that, that, that place where you, you know him personally. And you're able to understand him in a very different way. Yes, you know the facts, but you know the father as well. Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, that, that's one of the hard things when you start talking about the Trinity. Um, when you relate to God, you relate to all three. But the Bible, I think, you know, when, when you look at the eternal state, it says God will be among them and be their people, and He will be with them and be their God. Sort of those, those uh, edges between the Father and the Son sort of like disappear a little bit. And we're relating to God, because God is a Trinity, right? And that's one of the things we've got to be careful of. We, we, can't, we can't get to the air of fusing them all together, but we can't break them all apart. There's sort of a schizophrenia about us a little bit. Yes, there's three, but there's one, but yet there's three. Um, and when we're talking about knowing God, it's knowing God as the Godhead, all three members. Um, so I think that, that's probably the, the way, best way to answer that. Um, a knowledge of God provides the answers to life's questions. You want to know the answer to life's question? I took a philosophy class at Oberlin College, and one of the things you learn about taking philosophy at a college like that is they have a lot of questions, but no answers. You know, uh, they'll talk about, well, what did Kierkegaard think about why we exist? I, I know the answer to that. I don't know about what Kierkegaard thinks, but I know why I exist. And, uh, you know, where do we come from? Oh, I know the answer to that, too. We didn't come from an amoeba in a ooze pond or something like that. God created us. I know that. See, the problem with Christianity is we have the answers. And why do we have the answers? Because God gave them to us. It's not because of our intellectual abilities. God's given us the answers. So if you want to know life's most important questions, you're not going to find that in philosophy. Because I'll tell you, they come a dime a dozen. One of the things when you study philosophies, everybody has a different philosophy. Which one's right? Well, pick one. Then you find out, well, he's not exactly right, so you pick another one. Look, folks, you don't need to go down that route. The Bible gives us the answer. It tells us why you're here. It tells you where you came from and where you're going. It gives you meaning and purpose. Why, why did God put you here now? Is this, is this all there is? Is there more after death? Is, is death the end all? It's not. The Bible has the answers. And God alone is the only one who can give you these answers. You're not going to find them... In the test tube, you're not going to find them in a philosophy or anything like that. You're going to find them in the Word of God and in a knowledge of God, knowing who God is. So having looked at these reasons, now we need to ask the question, well, how can I know God? All right, you've convinced me. I need to know God. I need to know what He is like. Okay, how do I do that? How do I go about knowing God? Well, when you look at that, there's only two possible answers. Number one, you can find out God using your own brain, your own intellect. You can use your own reason to find out who God is. You can go out and think about it and look at the flowers in the universe 
and you can use your own intellect and come up with God. The problem with that is what God do you come up with? That's right. And how many definitions of God then would there be? As many as there are people, right? Because one of our problems here, and I'm going to use this term here. This is a fancy term you can use and you can impress your friends with this after the class. It's called noetic. N-O-E-T-I-C. Noetic. When theologians talk about this, they talk about the noetic effect of sin. It comes from the Greek word nous, mind. What has sin done to your mind, to your ability to rationally think and understand God? It's distorted it. It's corrupted it. So if you depend on your own rationality, what, what God are you going to come up with? The wrong one. Always. Always. You can't depend on your own human reason. Okay? Because it is corrupted. It has been corrupted by the fall. We're not able to discern spiritual things. Go out and ask the average pagan and ask them about spiritual things. They don't know what you're talking about. Do you ever have that? Look at the talk shows on TV. That will really depress you. You think Phil Donahue or Rollo or Oprah have answers to life's questions? They have their own little concoction or view of things. And it's always in, in direct contradiction to what the scripture teaches. So if you depend on your own intellect, you're in trouble. Or the other way is God has to reveal himself, right? God has to take the initiative. And the scripture says that what God has done is God has taken the initiative to help us understand him. All right? So when think about this, let's think of creation. This is a little chart here, a little image. Before Genesis 1-1, what did you have? God. Nothing else existed, right? All you have is God. Well, the Word was with God. The Word was God, not a God, like Jehovah Witnesses tell you. It was God. So, before existence, before Genesis 1-1, all you had was God. And what did God create? Everything else, right? What do we mean by everything else? Well, look in the box. What did God create? God created the matter of the universe, right? God created the space where it exists. God created, and this is interesting, God created time, didn't he? Prior to, prior to creation, was there any such thing as a time? Clock? No, that didn't exist. God created that. God also created Satan, didn't he? He created man, he created angels. Now, here, why is this important? Well, let's understand, if, God, if, if you remove creation, what would you have? God. All right? Which means that God exists outside of and apart from creation, right? So, in other words, nothing that happens inside this creation will ever affect that which is outside of creation, which is God. You think Satan is going to pull it off at the end and foul it up? Can't, can he? Because Satan cannot jump outside of creation. He can't. Nothing is going to thwart the decree of God. Nothing is going to thwart his plan. Nothing inside that box will ever affect what's outside. What did, um, before God created us in um, enjoyment or entertainment, what did he do before then? Just exist? He existed in the fullness of um, his perfections. 
I mean, that's where our brain sort of stops. Um, before time existed, you had the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, perfect harmony. They were perfectly happy. And for whatever reason, for God's own pleasure, he created everything that there is. Why did he feel, I'm sorry, oh, why did he feel he needed to create? They were already in his own pleasure. Why did he feel he needed to... Only God can give you that answer. Okay. Only God. All, all I say is the Bible says God created things for His own pleasure. He wanted to. Yeah. He created Satan. Satan is a created being. He was an angel. What we mean by Satan there is God created the angelic beings of which one of them became Satan. Now we are going to talk about that question. So don't don't get, uh, we will get. We will talk about the origin of evil. It's called theodicy. Why, why did God allow evil? Why did God allow that? You know, sort of messes things up. Well, from the eternal plan, it doesn't. Although it looks like it does. But from the eternal plan of God, sin does not thwart the plan of God at all. And we'll talk about that. But God created the angelic beings of which some became Satan and demons. Just like God created men, and what happened? Men fell. All right. The, the point of this little image here is to understand that God exists apart from everything that exists. God is a non-contingent being. What we mean by that is God's existence does not depend on anything else other than himself. Your existence depends on what? God. It also depends on air, water, food. An environment, right? God's existence does not depend on anything. So before the creation of the universe, only God existed. He was it. That, there was nothing else. And God was in perfect harmony with himself. He was perfectly happy. And for un, uh, reasons known only to God, for his own pleasure, God created the universe. And created mankind in order to share himself with mankind. Because of this, God exists apart from and outside of the creation, which means he's not limited by any physical law in the universe. Why? He created them. God created the physical laws. He's not bound by them. God is the only being that exists and can exist outside the boundaries. Nothing inside creation can jump out of it. Because by definition, being created means you're part of that box. And if the universe ceased to exist, God would be completely unaffected. He would be in, and of, in of himself. It doesn't depend on creation. God does not depend on the creation. So, since God exists outside of creation, what do you, if you want to know God, what do you have to do? There's two ways. If God exists outside of creation, there's only two possible ways to really know God, right? Number one, you have to be able to do what? Jump out. We can't jump out, right? So, what has to happen? God has to jump in. God has to take the initiative. And that's what it says there. He must take the initiative to reveal himself. If you want to know God, God's going to have to take the initiative. He's going to have to make the first step. And he does that. Because that which is inside creation cannot fathom or comprehend which is that which is outside. And that which is inside can't jump outside. So the only way for that which is inside to understand that which is outside is for that which is outside to step inside the creation. The best you can do is understand that God exists. That's it. 
The best you can do is understand, yes, there is a God out there, but what he is like, what his personality is like, what he wants, there's no way we can know that unless he tells us that. Yeah. It doesn't affect God in any sense. We pray for them. It's a work of God. What we're going to find out as we go through these courses and, and that is that God must take the initiative not only universally but individually. Can I prove that God exists to anybody? God has to do a work in their heart. It's the Holy. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, by the way, don't don't uh, don't minimize that. We had a German exchange student stay with us, and she came, and she didn't believe in God at all. She was brought up an atheist. Didn't exist. Brought up in East Germany. God does not exist. It's a crutch for the weak people. And uh, four months later, she became a Christian. And it was because God did a work in her heart. It was not me. It was not anybody else. It was God breaking it down. God can do that. We pray for them. You pray for them. Um, when opportunity arises, you talk to them. But, it, but you can't talk them into it. I wish we could, right? But we can't. I had a, a friend who, um, after years, accepted Christ. And what he said is, what bothers him is he looks back in his life and he sees how many times God actually came to him through people or through experiences, yet he rejected him. Right. And it took him that long to finally accept him. But until then, he never saw God has to open. This, this is something important to understand. God has to open the understanding. If he does not do that, nothing will work. Because we are darkened. The, the, the average person out there who's a pagan is not seeking God for God. They're seeking what God gives them, right? Peace, love, joy, the goodies, all that kind of stuff. But no one seeks God for who God is. Romans 3 tells us that, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seek after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're unprofitable. It means they're sour milk. You throw them out. They're good for nothing. God has to take the initiative, and he does. He will. So if we want someone saved, we should, the initial prayer should be, Lord, reserve yourself? Yes. And God can do that. God can take care of himself. God can reveal himself. And what I challenged, you know, in our particular case of our exchange student, I told her, I said, listen, I said, I'm not going to try to talk you into being a Christian. I said, but I would tell you this. Why don't you look up in the sky and just say, God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me. And I said, now, if you do that, you've got to make sure that if he reveals himself, you're ready to respond. <laughs> but God can take that challenge. God can, God, God's perfectly capable of doing that. And God's done that to us, right? I mean, I'm a scientist. I have a... I have a bachelor's degree in physics. Look, you know, if I can't see it, it's not there, right? How do, why do I believe in a place I've never seen, heaven? Why do I believe in a God? I've never talked to God, right? Never, he never talked. He never, I never heard him speak, you know. But I believe in him. Why? Because he revealed himself to me. And God can do that. God can break through the darkness. And, God, and that's the only way God can break through. Or that's the only way it's going to happen is God has to break through and reveal himself to us.
So when we talk about this revelation, there's two general categories. There's general, which everybody can see, and there's special, which is revealed in the Scripture and in Christ. There's two general, we call that the two avenues of God's revelation to mankind. When we look at general revelation, it's God's revelation and existence revealed to everybody. Anybody on the face of the planet has access to this revelation. And we, look, we, we talk about three loci or three um, locus or focus points on this. Number one, nature. When you look at nature, God exists. Anybody with any level of sanity looking at the complexity of the human body has to believe that there's a designer somewhere. You did not come from an amoeba. When you look at the complexity of... I remember reading a story on blood and, and, and just seeing the complexity of that chemical element, blood, and how it's not just the chemical elements, it's the actual three-dimensional structure of the molecule that lets it carry blood or oxygen to the cells. How did that come about? Accidental? You, 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 it's incredulous to think that that was an accident. God created that. When you look at nature, you have to admit that there's something out there. Now, you may not know who that something is, but there's something out there that created. And when you look at history, you see history has a plan. It's a purpose. And you look at yourself. Look at your own complexity. Look at your thinking, your ability to reason. That's accidental. I love it when I read. The, I like watching nature you know, shows on TV, and it's just frustrating. Well, you know, look how evolution has guided the, you know, get evolution out of there. Look at the complexity. Look at, if not just in the, in the physical, look at your ability to think, to reason, to talk. That's all accidental? No, I don't think so. When you look around you, you understand that there's a God somewhere that created this. You may not know the specifics of it, but you know that there's a power beyond you. And that's a universal thing unless you're taught not to believe it. Unless you're taught to be an atheist. And I'm just going to zip through these. I'm going to spend a lot of time on these. You can read them through the notes. But when you look at general revelation, there's several arguments for the existence of God. Now, these are not proofs. I can't prove God to you, right? Can I prove that God exists? No, because I can't put him in a test tube and here it is. I can't give you a mathematical proof. But I can give you certainly a lot of evidences that it exists. That he exists. One of them is what we call the cosmological argument. It comes from the Greek word cosmos, order, design. And what it basically says is for every effect there is a cause. So you go back and you start working backwards. Well, why are you here? You're here because your parents were here. Right? Why were they here? Well, their parents were here. So you keep working back and finally you get to a point where you say, all right, what was the first uncaused cause? That's God. He is the uncaused cause, the creator of all that there is. There is a start. There had to be an initial start to creation. And God is that. And when you look at the creation out there, when you look at the universe, you see an order and a design that implies that there is a designer behind it. When you look at a watch, you don't talk about the evolution of that watch from the metal that was in the ground. You, you all, all of a sudden you think, of somebody designed this thing. Somebody made this. And that's when you look at creation, God is the designer. He is the maker, the author. Another argument we call the teleos, teleological argument from telos, end. The universe has an end in mind. It's not chaotic. The universe is not just a chaotic 
random collection of molecules and atoms and things. There's, there's an order behind it. When you look at the complexity of our world and the earth and, and how it's been designed specifically almost for our existence, you would understand that there's an order and an end in mind when it was created. And this intricate design implies that there's a God behind it who made it. We're not accidental. And the only way you can get around this is you've got to be taught that God doesn't exist. There's an anthropological argument. It comes from anthropos, man. And basically what this argument says is the universe and the earth appears to be designed for us. It's amazing, you know, that the earth is at the exact distance from the sun it needs to be in order to support life. You get a little closer, we all burn up. You get a little bit farther away, we all freeze. Now, how did that happen? Some, yeah, Big Bang, right. Um, you, look at, you look at the environment around us and, 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 the, and the, the, the fact that we have a, uh, an atmosphere with oxygen in it. And that the plants create oxygen for us to breathe. That's an amazing thing right there. God created that. It's not accidental. And when you look at, even from our, our own physical body and the way we're created, there's an amazing complexity to us. Another argument is the moral argument. What's that? Everybody has right and wrong. Now, you may have the label switched on the, on the dials, right? But every society, no matter where you go on the earth, every society has built within it a concept that there are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong. Where did that come from? Are animals like that? Do animals have a morality to them? No, they don't. What, what, what makes us different? Now, you talk to the evolutionists and it's just like, well, we sort of like really don't know what makes us different, I guess. Well, I'll tell you what makes us different. God created us that way. When God created Adam, God created Adam with a sense of right and wrong. That was built in. It's called a conscience. And the fact that you have a conscience implies what? That there is somebody out there who makes the rules. Now, it's interesting. I talked to a person who is a Unitarian. And the, and the Unitarian faith, basically, um, it's sort of like I asked her, so what? Why, why do you believe murder is wrong? Well, it's not nice. That was the answer. Okay, well, why is it not nice? Well, most people think that it's not nice. And I asked her, so, well, if most people would say that it is nice to murder, would it be okay then? See, the problem, once you start going down that path, what's right, what's wrong? Well, let's take a vote. Let's think about it. Why do you think abortion is so prevalent? Over the years, we've sort of become accustomed to it, right? It's a good thing. Well, and there's the argument that the fetus isn't... Yeah, fetus is not a being. Or, you know, yeah. But when you look at, when you start um, creating morals, moral um, absolutes by taking a vote, you're in trouble, right? Because what happens to the mind? Noetic effect, what does that mean? We can't think right. We don't have the right information. We have a gauge that tells us things are right and wrong, but how is that gauge calibrated to what is really right and wrong? Where does that come from? From God, from a study of His Word, to know what God says is right and what God says is wrong. But the fact that there is a conscience implies that there is a lawgiver out there who makes the laws. The ontological argument, this is a heavy one, basically what it means is if you can think there is a God, He must exist. Think of something that doesn't exist. Can you do that? 
can't, right? And basically what the ontological argument says is because we can believe that there is a God, it implies there is some kind of supreme being somewhere. And Anselm at the beginning says God, and in there says, God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. God is there. And uh, the, the quote from Kaiser, we cannot think of the relative without also thinking of an absolute. We can't think of the derived without also thinking of the underived. We can't think of the dependent without also thinking of the independent. We cannot think of the imperfect without thinking of the perfect. We cannot think of the finite without thinking of the infinite. Now, if these concepts are not true and there is no perfect, absolute, infinite being, then man's thinking in its deepest constitution is null and void. If that were true, all of our thinking would be insane and futile. Can we believe that? The fact that you can believe... And finite things means there's an infinite thing out there somewhere. And that infinite thing is God. Now again, these are not proofs. Right? Can't prove it. But it shows that there's evidence that there is a God out there. But if we want to know who that God is, that's not going to help us. Because what general revelation going to do? It can help us know that God exists, right? It can help us know that God's a powerful being. I mean, he made all of this stuff, right? I mean, that's pretty powerful. We can know he's a God of order and purpose. Why? Because we see order and, and, and things around us. We can help, it can help us know he's outside of the creation. He exists apart from it. We can know him as creator, but we can't know what he is like. So if you want to know what God is like, what do you have to do? He has to reveal himself. God has to take the initiative and step into the box of creation and tell us what he is like. And this is called special revelation. And the basic two forms of this, number one, God's revealed himself through his words and through Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us this. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners and times, back, times past spoke to us by the fathers and prophets, have in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Two ways God has revealed himself. Number one, through his words. Through the word that he has created. And that's given to the apostles, the prophets, the written word of God, what you have here in your hand, this is God's revelation. But as important as this was, when God really wanted to reveal himself, what did he do? He stepped into time in the person of Christ. The second member of the Trinity took upon himself humanity, became a man, walked among us. And in John chapter 14, remember when um, Judas, who's not as scared, asked him, said, Well, show us the Father and we'll be happy. What did Christ say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at me. I'm the embodiment of who he is like. And we need to understand something here. God wants to reveal himself to us a lot more than we want him to reveal himself to us. God wants us to know him a lot worse than we want to know him. So God's not going to make this revelation tough and hard and difficult. He's going to, he wants to reveal himself. And he's revealed himself through his word and through his son. God has revealed himself, his nature to mankind through his words. The Old and New Testament, what do we see? His revelation, what he is like. What God is like. If you want to know what God is like, this is the book that will tell you what he is like. God has written it down. Why did God give us a book? So that we could read it and analyze it. We didn't get music videos or anything like that. We got a book. We can read it. We can understand it. And by the way, just as a side, 
everyone in here can understand this. This is not secret, weird, tough to understand stuff. It might take a little bit of effort, it might take a little bit of work, but you can understand this because you have the Holy Spirit who gives you insight. The Holy Spirit is a teacher, not me. The Holy Spirit will teach you. And he will help you understand the Word of God. But God has revealed himself through the prophets. And he gave revelation through dreams, right? Daniel, Revel, uh, uh, Joseph, God revealed himself in dreams. He even talked audibly to people, right? Talked audibly to Moses. Moses heard him. But in all cases, when God reveals himself, what is he revealing? He's revealing something about his person, his character, his will, what he is like. He's revealing that to men. God's special revelation to us today exists in what? Our Bible. 66 books. Now, we're not going to study this now. We're going to get to that later. But we're going to talk about how do we know if this is the revelation that God wants us to have. Maybe, maybe God left a couple of books out. I don't know. Somebody came up with a book called The Lost Books of the Bible. There are no lost books of the Bible, folks. God did not lose any of his revelation. God did not make a mistake and say, well, I really have another book that was supposed to be part of the New Testament. They missed that one. No, God sovereignly and providentially gave us this book. It is complete. It is whole. It's not missing anything. Everything is here. In these verses, 1 Timothy 3.16, talk about um, the word is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. 2 Peter 1, 19-21, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Psalm 119, the whole chapter, talks about God's revelation. And in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, what did Christ do with the two guys that were depressed? Started at the prophets and told them all about what would happen to the Messiah. God's revealed himself in his word. However, as wondrous the Bible is, God has revealed himself ultimately how? Jesus Christ, his son. You want to know what God is really like? Get to know Jesus. Study the Gospels. Find out what Christ was like and you'll get to know what God is like. John 14, Christ says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 says he is the exact representation, the icon. The Greek word means to stamp a die on a, stamp a, a, an image on a, on a coin, a die. You want to know what God is like? Christ is the exact image, the exact representation of what God is like. He's not different than God. If you want to know God, you can know Christ. In John 17, of course, Christ says that he wants us to know the Father and to know him and have fellowship with him. Christ is the ultimate revelation. Therefore, if we are to know God as a person, you find those answers in the word of God. It's here where he's revealed himself accurately and clearly. And as you study the word, as you look at it, it will guide you. And the Holy Spirit will give you insight and understanding. God, and again, God wants you to know him worse than you want to know him. God's not up there seeing, how can I, how can I hide myself? How can I play hide and seek, hot and cold with these people? No, he wants us to know him. And if we take that that step to study his word and to get to know him, we will begin an awesome journey towards knowing God. Not knowing about God, but knowing God. And that's where we're going to head in the weeks ahead. Next week, we'll look at your view of God. And this is interesting. As, as a homework assignment, why don't you go home and just think about how do you view God? Maybe write down a few little sentences on how do I view God? 
if somebody said, you know, what is God like, what, what would come to my mind? How do, how do I view Him? And uh, we'll explore that next week. Well, we're out of time. It went fast, hopefully. Any comments, questions? Is this what you all expected? I like the idea of uh, bringing God's pleasure to learning Yeah, God wants you to know Him. He does. He wants you to know um, Did everybody sign the sheet? Feel free. Make sure everybody gets a sign up on the sheet here. And uh, we'll send out a uh, link to the website so that everybody can get to it. And uh, let's close in prayer now. Father, thanks so much for this time and for being here with us. Thank you for giving us this hour to talk about you. And I pray that in the weeks ahead, we may truly get to know you personally in a very real way. Father, this is not a class just to get more facts. It's a class to know about you. And I pray that we would all have that desire and that you would teach us. And thank you for this opportunity again. In Christ's name, amen.